Well, hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin, this is Gospel Simplicity, and I am so glad that you are here today because today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Gavin Ortland. Dr. Gavin Ortland describes himself as a Christian trying to live in light of what Jesus has done for him. He is a husband to Esther and a father to Isaiah, Naomi, Elijah, and most recently Miriam. He serves as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He holds a PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary in Historical Theology, an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary, and is the author of several books in the realm of theology, and he regularly writes online in the realm of theology and Christian living. His most recent book is on Augustine and creation, and today we are going to be talking about his 2019 book, Theological Retrieval for Evan. Evangelicals. Dr. Ortland, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes. So I wanted to start by just asking, how did you initially get interested in studying church history? I think the beginning point for me was uh, I was a senior in high school and I was at the airport and somehow I had gotten my hands on an Alvin Plantinga article which was going over what's called the ontological argument, which people watch. Some people, people on your channel probably are well familiar with the, with this argument. But for people who don't know of it, it's one of the more obscure and just weird arguments for the existence of God. And I was just fascinated by it. I just thought it was such an interesting idea. And that led me to Anselm, who was the medieval theologian who first uh, developed this argument. And then... I began to see so many other things in Anselm that were just so interesting to me. I was an evangelical Christian, always having grown up in evangelical circles, really didn't know much about church history. And there was just enough about Anselm that was just intriguing to me that kind of pulled me in. I always think of the quote in uh, Mr. Holland's opus, the movie, where he's describing how he uh, fell in love with jazz music and he says, he started listening to John Coltrane. He says, at first I couldn't stand it, and then I couldn't stop listening to it. And then after a while, I um, realized I wanted to, what I wanted to do with my life. And the very kind of intriguing oddities of it kind of pulled him in. And that's for me with medieval theology and just with church history in general. I always use the metaphor of traveling to a different culture to read the church fathers to read the medieval doctors, to read any anything pre-modern, really, even outside of church history, just history, is like a cultural uh, travel. You know, you, you see different ways of looking at the world. And I just think that's, it's really interesting. It's a lot of fun. And I think it's really helpful for the pursuit of truth in general. And, and as a Christian, you know, a faith-seeking understanding approach that Ansel models, I think, that approach should have a humble consideration for previous generations. So um, that's probably the origin point with Anselm. But then that led me to a whole larger world. That's awesome. And for those that are interested who heard Anselm and are already on the edge of their seat, I understand you actually just published a book, This one of three books you've published this year on Anselm, and you did it with Catholic University Press, I believe. So I'm sure some of my Catholic audience would be delighted to hear that. But yeah, if they want to check that out, I'll leave a link to that. Oh, thanks for doing that. Yeah, the title is um, Anselm's Search for Joy, and it was from Catholic University of America Press. Yeah, the Catholics definitely are leading the charge on Anselm scholarship. So uh, Catholics and Bardians, 
uh, are probably the, the leading voices on, on Anselm. So one of my things is evangelicals can engage people like Anselm too. We should. Yes. And you have a section in the atonement where you deal with Anselm here, uh, where you go over, I believe it was Irenaeus, Anselm, and who was the final one in that section? I'd have to look the, uh. the other one was Athanasius. Yeah, that's Athanasius. one of the chapters in the retrieval book. Awesome. Well, speaking of Catholics, as I mentioned, the majority of my audience is Catholic. And I often say that if I had a dollar for every time I received a comment quoting Cardinal John Henry Newman's <laughs> famous quote to be deep in church history is to cease to be Protestant, I would, well, I'd probably just buy a lot more books than I have right now. <laughs> but I would have plenty of money to do it. So according to that quote, according to popular knowledge of that quote, you in some ways are a living contradiction. You have a PhD in church history. I, I think that counts as going pretty deep in church history, and yet you have not ceased to be Protestant. So in what ways have you found that quote to not quite work out as a universal? Yeah, I realized the Baptist pastor publishing on Anselm, you know, it's not exactly the stereotype. Um, I think the way I would address this is I, I think uh, there's a lot of caricatures that exist from Protestants to Catholics and Catholics to Protestants. And so I think in both directions, there can be misunderstandings and just um, simplified versions of what the other side believes on any given topic. And um, I've been on my own journey. This is why I appreciate your channel and the kinds of things you're doing. I've been on my own journey of trying to unlearn those caricatures. Um, it hasn't made me become Catholic. Uh, I'm Protestant by conviction, but I've grown greatly in my respect for Catholic friends I have and just the enormity of the Catholic tradition. I mean, whatever else, you've got to treat this tradition with respect. Uh, it is so massive. So, um, but if I may say, I do think one of the caricatures from the Catholic side that not always, but sometimes can be there in terms of how Protestants are understood is that where this kind of headless horse that just is total chaos, there's a zillion denominations, even the, the statistics of how many denominations there are that are frequently cited operate with a very loose definition of the word denomination. And so sometimes those numbers can be exaggerated. And it's certainly true that Protestantism has many flaws, but I think the idea that Protestants aren't deep in history isn't true of Protestantism at its best. I think Catholicism at its best, Protestantism at its best, both have great interest in church history. And the reason I say that is because of the reformers themselves. Their appeal was not only on the basis of scripture, but also on the basis of the early church. This is something I uh, put great emphasis on in the theological retrieval book. Calvin at one point said, all we're trying to do is go back to the purity of the fourth century. Um, you know, at the beginning of the Institutes, his prefatory letter, he's got this litany of issues he goes through where he's arguing, actually, the church fathers are favoring the Protestant side on these various issues. So whatever the truth of those disputes is, and there's a lot of complexity we need to engage there, I don't see the early church as wholesale on either Catholic or Protestant side. But um, it certainly is the case that I think we need to do more than simply think of it as the Bible is on the Protestant side, 
church histories on the Catholic side. It's just, it's much more complicated than that. At their best, Protestants are deeply concerned with and rooted in history. There's just a different understanding of how that works, how history is interpreted, and then the role that it plays. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. And something I'm really passionate about here on this channel is working through those caricatures and kind of bringing them to light to show that they really don't hold weight. And just as you mentioned that, that Protestants can be deep in church history, so too can Catholics be really great exegetes of Scripture. And I think it's just so much better for us to be able to recognize those things, and we're able to have a lot better conversations once we do that. Now, I will say, I want to start off with something that is actually how I found your channel. And so, in the, in the spirit of charity, this isn't about bashing at all. It's not like we're taking this hard turn here. But I found your channel through a video you made, and I'll leave a link to it as well, of addressing Cameron Bertuzzi, a prominent Protestant YouTuber who runs a great channel called Capturing Christianity. I'm sure a lot of my subscribers are familiar with it. And the thesis of your video was essentially that Cameron shouldn't become Catholic. And in fact, you make the argument, and it's a short video, it's obviously not comprehensive, people can look for your work elsewhere, um, but I want to get into it a little bit here. Of You mentioned that Protestants are in the best position to be historically grounded and retain what C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity. Can you break down why you think that is, and perhaps what you see lacking in Catholicism in that regard? Sure. Yeah. And, and the video with Cameron came out just in the context of loving his channel, appreciating what he does. I tend to watch a lot of apologetic stuff on, on YouTube. So I'm familiar with not only his work, but then um, there's lots of Catholic YouTube apologetic stuff that I watch as well. So and then I have had a number of friends who have converted to Catholicism or orthodoxy and a couple who've gone through both. <laughs> they get to Catholicism through orthodoxy or vice versa. So that's always interesting. So I'm kind of living in this world right now, especially because I'm a Protestant pastor, an evangelical Protestant pastor, um, but my interest is in church history. So all these thoughts are very much on my mind. And I think to to break down the essential appeal that I made in that video or tried to, and and generally, it's kind of where I've landed um, on these issues, obviously, there's so much to these differences between Catholic Christians, Protestant Christians. But one of the the appeals that I like to make is that I really think Protestantism does leave one more free to follow one's conscience on particular matters of doctrine. Not infinitely free. I, I you know, the claim that Protestants, you know, every Protestant is their own pope. That kind of criticism actually isn't true if you're a part of a, a Protestant denomination that has doctrinal standards. You know, you're not just an individualistic authority over yourself. But um, there's lots of Catholic doctrines that have developed over the centuries that if you become Catholic, you're bound to adhere to. So in that video, I talked a lot about Mariology. And um, there's, you know, the first of the four Catholic dogmas about Mary is one that I would affirm, that Mary is the mother of God. And I think, I actually agree with Karl Barth, who said that that's not only something a Protestant can affirm, but actually it's a litmus test if for if you understand the incarnation, if you can affirm that. Yeah. So I would say totally on board with calling Mary the mother of God and just the general sense that Protestants 
need to have greater regard and respect for Mary. But the second through fourth dogmas, um, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she was immaculately conceived, and that she was bodily assumed to heaven, I've done a, a little bit of a dive into the Church Fathers on those things, and my claim would be that um, it's hard, especially for the last one, uh, you know, it's it's a mixed record. So on the second, uh, perpetual virginity of Mary, you do start to see that in like the fourth century. Um, you can find little scattered precursors of it where she's called ever virgin. Mm-hmm. But you also have fathers who, who don't seem to think that way, like Tertullian. Um, same with Immaculate Conception. Uh, you can find dissident voices. People go both directions among the church fathers on exactly how to understand that. Some people think Mary was sinless, but they don't think she was immaculately conceived, so they don't think that was the mechanism for her sinlessness. Others seem to assume, you know, they in their writing a commentary on Luke, and they find fault with Mary for the way she um, interacts with the boy Jesus at the temple. That'd be one example of where okay. you can see the church fathers, in some instances, uh, clearly not thinking of Mary as sinless. But the bodily assumption one would be the one that I think is is the latest development. And I just would argue you don't see a lot of clear evidence for that early on. And it's disputed exactly when that evidence comes into into play. But m- my point would be this, that as a Protestant, you could have conceivably a very high view of Mary. You, there's nothing within Protestantism that disallows one from uh, adopting whichever of those dogmas that you think is true. But as a Catholic, you're, you're conscience-bound to the dogmas of the Church. The, those that have been dogmatized, you, you have to adhere to as a good Catholic. And so that, that leaves one in a state where if you're studying the historical evidence on this, and you're not convinced that Mary, say, was bodily assumed to heaven, maybe you come to think, you know, um, I don't think that was actually a deposit of apostolic Christianity. I think that was a later accretion that developed, if, if you come to that view. Well, what do you do? Um, you're you're in a difficult position there with respect to your conscience, because it's really important to me to be able to follow my conscience for what I think is actually the case. So the appeal in that video briefly made and here that I'm regurgitating is being a Protestant doesn't mean you have to cut yourself off from church his- history, but it means you have a more openly critical posture to sift through the annals of history with Scripture as your guide and you're able to um, critically distinguish what you think is true and what you think is false. And I think that's uh, actually a more generous posture toward church history. So I, I hope that doesn't offend Catholics who are watching this, but that's kind of um, a little bit of where I've landed personally as I've wrestled with this, again, with great respect for Catholic and realizing there's a lot of caricatures that I have had about Catholics that I've needed to unlearn, and I'm still in that process, still learning, so trying to be a good listener in these conversations as well. I really appreciate your approach to that. And I can resonate with that so much of having to unlearn so much. And I can't even pinpoint exactly when I was taught many of these things, but I think they're classic examples of things that are more caught than taught as far as an approach towards Catholicism. And a lot of my journey has been sifting through what are the things I just thought were weird? What are the things I assumed? And then where are my actual critical engagements with this where I see "Mm, I don't quite line up here. And it's been a really interesting journey. And I like how you mentioned as well the 
the situation that you're put in as a Catholic. This is actually a question I was working on an outline last night for Trent Horn, who's coming on the show next week on the papacy. And whether the papacy and the Catholic setup of doctrine creates this firm foundation or a house of cards in which if I disagree with one of the Marian dogmas, I've kind of undermined the whole thing because all of them are wrapped together in the infallible teaching of the church. And so you mentioned you kind of get put in this sticky situation there. Right. Yeah, just a, a hypothetical scenario that I like to propose to my Catholic friends so that they feel my pain <laughs> and they feel my sense of, you know, I recognize their tradition has a kind of institutional primacy over mine. And so I, I feel the weight of that. I, I think I should become Catholic unless I have a reason not to theologically. So I, I grant that point. The, um, the hypothetical scenario I propose to help them understand my dilemma is suppose, hypothetically speaking, I know they don't think this will happen, the Pope were to dogmatize a particular view 500 years from now that you deeply believed was not true. What would you do? And that, that scenario, though hypothetical, might create sympathy for the Protestant dilemma. Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's actually one that I asked when I was on a podcast with Keith Little of The Cordial Catholic, and I think I have a clip of it on my channel, of what can the Catholic Church be wrong about? And I don't want to—I I love Keith, so I, I would hate to mischaracterize his response, but I think what it comes down to is almost that the Pope couldn't do that, is is the belief of the Church, that, that he is being guided in such a way that— not only he couldn't, but he wouldn't, I guess, is the response. But I agree, it's it's an unsettling idea to think about that. Um, yeah. But I, I do want to uh, talk a little bit about your book, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. I just picked this up on Monday, and I've read through the all of the first half and a bit of the second half, and I can say it's a wonderful book for my Protestant listeners out there. I know you will love this, and I think even for my Catholic and Orthodox viewers, you might find it really interesting to know how does a well-learned Protestant approach church history, because that might just seem like an oxymoron to you. And so if you're curious what that process would look like or what a Protestant rationale is when approaching church history, I would recommend this book to you. And of course, the link will be down below. But the subtitle of this book is that we need the past to have a future. Could you break down what theological retrieval is and why it matters? Okay, sure, yeah. So a shorthand definition of theological retrieval could just be historical theology unto systematic constructive theology. So we're simply trying to utilize the tradition to the end of doing theology well today, and oftentimes it will have a focus upon um, drawing from forgotten or neglected resources. And in a way, I mean, honestly, in a way, it's nothing new. It's just sort of normal theological method. This is what theology should always do. You never want to engage in theology without appreciation of what has gone before you. Um, but I think it's uh, it's a huge movement right now among Protestants. I think, uh, and this is relevant to what we're just talking about with Catholic-Protestant discussions, lots of evangelical Christians are realizing that we've not been deeply rooted in history, and we need to do a better job of understanding the past, understanding where we've come from, 
I think two basic reasons for that would be for for why this is important. One would be that we're traditioned creatures. Part of what it means to be a human being is you are affected by what has come before you. And the only option is to what extent we're aware of that. You know, even the most low church worship service, we're pretty low church down here at First Baptist Church of Ojai. So we're, um, but there are traditions that we have. We may not even call them traditions, but they're still traditions. We're still shaped by things that came before us. And so in a way, um, being connected to the past, influenced by the past is inevitable. We simply want to do so responsibly and well. But the second and major reason why I think theological retrieval is so important is that we do theology in the context of the church. I always love the story of Karl Barth going back and renaming the Christian dogmatics, the church dogmatics, and his whole rationale for that. Theology is done in the proper context of the church, and the church extends not just through space, but also through time. And so um, just for the same reason that it would be uh, narrow and unhelpful if we only ever listened to American theologians and never considered theologians from other places. So also it's the same thing if we only listen to 20th and 21st century theologians and not, you know, 17th century theologians and 9th century theologians and, and so on back in time. So um, that's the broad case. And I would just say that right now in our culture and in, in kind of the late modern West, I would say I think it's especially important because there's such a restlessness, there's such a sense of rootlessness. I think many of the things people are looking for as they convert to Catholicism and Orthodoxy is the wonderful grandeur that these traditions offer. Um, and I think uh, there's much to say about that theologically. You know, there's a sense of barrenness in modern Western culture and the past. Engaging the past is one way to to help meet that need. So I'm really excited and, and passionate about this whole movement. I think it's a really important thing in the church. I think so as well. And I think you do very well to tie that into certain sociological trends that we do see things changing so quickly in our culture. And we live in this highly anxious culture. And I think people are looking for some type of firm foundation, some type of rootedness. And I think a lot of people are finding that in Catholicism and orthodoxy. Now, you mentioned earlier that the idea of a Baptist pastor publishing on Anselm isn't exactly a, a norm, if you will. And I imagine, you know, as we've hinted, not many people would also put Baptist and PhD in historical theology together. Now, for people out there, for maybe some of my Protestant listeners who really just value this idea of, uh, like, we are people of the book. I've got me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. What more do I need? I, I imagine perhaps you've come across some, maybe you've trained your, your church so well that you don't have any of those Baptists in your congregation, but I imagine you can imagine that hypothetical person. How would you respond to them, uh, the people that say, why do I need church history? It's me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. What, what more do you need than that? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a number of strategies I've developed for this, <laughs> and we definitely have not arrived as a church. We've definitely, you know, got lots of work to be done. Um, the biggest one that I have is simply uh, diving in with people, uh, saying, hey, let's just take some time and let's read through Augustine's Confessions together. I don't think there's anything I can say that is as powerful as the experience of just exposure. 
um, because there's such a richness in a book like that and so many other classics that have stood the test of time that simply to be exposed to it, um, I think, undermines a lot of the caricatures and can be so useful. There's other questions that are helpful to to push upon people. One is, if it's just me and my Bible, where did we get that Bible? Actually, and this is a point that our Catholic friends often make, is the Bible does come about in the context of church history. Jesus didn't just hand off the disciples a book, you know. It took several centuries for the canon to be formalized and developed. And so there's a bit of naivety, I think, in thinking, well, it's just me and my Bible. Well, that Bible itself is the product of processes that involve church history, involve many different people. I think the other thing I would say is just the appeal that is related to what I just said of we would never say, or hopefully we would never say, I don't care what people in Africa or Asia think. I only want to listen to Western people. That would be a sign of incredible narrowness, and that would not be a healthy mentality. And I think just helping people see that actually when we take that same mentality that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, looking down on the past, it really is the same kind of prejudice. Um, it's just directed in a different way. And so, um, or it can be, I mean, I don't want to say it's necessarily prejudice, but I think it results in that. So just impressing upon people, there's real value in this. In the book, I use three metaphors. It's like going to school, it's like traveling to a different country, and it's like going to a counselor. So it teaches you, it stretches you to see through the world through different lenses, and it gives you perspective, an objective outside perspective on things unique to your own family dispute. So there's a lot, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but there, there's lots of appeals that can be made. The best one is simply to encourage people to dive in and taste for themselves. I really like that. I've often thought through this question conceptually, and I mentioned I wrote on this a little bit last year, but I love just the practical advice of just read the confessions, and soon enough you'll be saying, what else can I read by Augustine or something like that? And I also really like that you brought up C.S. Lewis's quote. I'll say that his preface to On the Incarnation in the SVS press version is worth the cost of the book itself. It's almost half of On the Incarnation. And in that, he goes through some of those same things about chronological snobbery and all of that. So if people haven't read that, I would recommend it as well. But I think that's a really helpful way. And I, I can tell that you've answered this question before. I'm sure as you write on this stuff, it, it comes up for you. But I'd like to ask, what do you see as distinctive about an evangelical approach to theological retrieval as opposed to perhaps a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox? Because as you said, it's a fairly basic task, theological retrieval. We should all be doing it. But in what ways does it look perhaps a little different for us as evangelicals, mm -hmm. if at all? I think there's lots of commonalities, but there are some distinctive points. The biggest one, I think, would be the simple point that as evangelicals, we'll be engaging church history more critically in a certain sense in that the scripture will stand above the task. That doesn't mean that we can't speak of church history as authoritative in any sense. I think the reformers were right to speak of, say, the early creeds and councils as having an authority over Christians, a binding authority, but it's a, they talked about that as a derived authority as opposed to an inherent authority. Um, so I think, I think Protestants can have a very high respect for church history, but I do think being an evangelical doing retrieval will mean you're not thinking of this as an infallible, immovable, um, 
pronouncement. Uh, anything that we come across will want to be engaging in light of the deposit of revelation that God's given throughout the Holy Scripture and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it's given to us in the New Testament, as it was given to the apostles. So there's a kind of different conception of church history here, where you've got um, a deposit of the gospel and then much unfolding and development in the understanding of that. But nonetheless, we're accountable to the scriptures in, in all that we do. And that, that will make a huge difference in how we go about the task. Yeah. And I imagine perhaps some of my Catholic audience feels like they're on a little bit of a roller coaster and that's okay. And because I imagine they were clapping for you when you said, you know, we do get the Bible in a way it is a product of church history that it came about through the church. And I'm sure, you know, if you were to write on that, you might have some nuancing you, you want to do, but then, so I imagine they were, they were loving that and then hearing, but it has to filter through scripture that, that it ultimately all, all bends to scripture might've felt like a, a li- they might feel some tension there. And so mm-hmm. how would you as an evangelical kind of put those two things together that historically we, we do get the Bible as a product of church history, but then ultimately we put church history under the Bible. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. So this is a question I've wrestled with a lot and I've come up with a metaphor because the metaphor okay. has always helped my mind think more concretely. So the metaphor is this, and the point of this metaphor is that the church can have a role in recognizing which books are scripture and which books are not, which is the process of canonization, without necessarily having it herself the same authority, the same level of authority as the scripture. And uh, to elucidate that, the metaphor would be um, a child is walking to school and they've got a note from mom that they get to get out of school tomorrow. The mom is requesting to the principal, you know, uh, I'm giving my stamp of approval on this. We're going on a family vacation or something. On the way to school, the child uh, is stopped by a bully who tears up the note. The child picks up the pieces and goes to the school and is able to piece them all together and tape it back into one note and hand it to the principal. Um, and therefore, the, the principal grants their request. Now, the it's a simple point here, but the child's ability to recognize the pieces of the note and put them together don't mean that the child has the same level of authority as the note itself, which comes from mom and has parental authority backing it. Similarly, I think it's at least conceptually possible that we can think of the church as having the role of recognizing which books are backed with divine authority and which books are not. And from there, the Protestant way of thinking, I think, would simply be to recognize that the scripture itself does claim a divine authority that is backing it. And you can see Jesus himself at times making the appeal, you know, you're trusting in the traditions of men rather than the commandments of God. That's at least a conceptually meaningful distinction, that it is possible that uh, human traditions will err and deviate from what God communicates through his word. And the scripture certainly does make a claim to be, to have divine authority. So then the question will be, well, if the scripture has that divine authority, um, what else could be on par with that? And then, then it would, then we'd be getting into more particular 
discussions about the Roman Catholic magisterium and how the Catholic understanding of that. But uh, but the the main point I would say is I do think it's at least conceptually possible to think of the church recognizing the canon without having the same level of authority as what is contained within the canon. Thank you. That, that's really helpful. It made me think back to, uh, I was talking, I, I think I made a video on, on Calvin, how he goes through it in the Institutes, and I wish I would have had this metaphor then. I kind of want to remake the video now. But that metaphors really are helpful to put that together, and, and I appreciate you walking through that. And I think, it, at the very least, I hope, you know, if for my Catholic listeners, you, you may not be like, okay, where's my nearest Protestant church now? But hopefully that helps you at least see the, the thought process uh, of how we might work through this and how that works for us. Something I wanted to bring up as well, and it com- this comes straight from your book, you talk about four dangers of theological retrieval. And I think it, it's interesting, that language, because I imagine for some going into uh, this process of looking into church history it will be exhilarating, and for some it might be unsettling as well. But you, you talk just through how to do this well, how to do it responsibly. And the four dangers you give are distortion of the history, kind of trying to make it answer our questions, artificiality, repristination, and minimalism. Is there any one of those that stands out to you? Or perhaps maybe even a different word you might use, but what do you see as perhaps the most common error when people start looking in to historical theology. They they start reading confessions and then they read some more of Augustine. And where do you see them maybe going wrong as they start on that process? Well, these are the four errors that I see most frequently. So distortion, if I remember these all correctly, I always mix them up when I don't have the book right in front of me. But I think this is when a systematic theologian is just sort of ransacking church history, they haven't read things in context. They're just plucking a quote here, a quote there. So they're good at systematic theology and constructing theology today, but they're not sensitive exegetes of these historical documents in their own context. Artificiality is the exact opposite, where you're really a good historical theologian. You're just plowing through, you know, you're doing excellent exegesis of origin or Athanasius or whoever, but then your application to contemporary issues is artificial. It's just kind of tacked on. It doesn't actually understand the complexities of the current issues and maybe new questions that have arisen subsequent. So because theological retrieval involves this interplay back between historical theology and systematic theology, and you're you're nurturing a dialogue between the two, it's really easy to be better at one of those than the other. And that's probably the most frequent danger I see is historical theologians not doing as well at contemporary theology or systematic theologians not doing as well at at church history. Um, That's probably the most common. Repristination is when we think of um, the past as this grand verdict that simply needs to be restated. And a lot of times we leapfrog over the problems of modernity and we're we're simply regurgitating the past as though it was as though that's all we need to do. It's kind of like the theological retrieval version of biblicism, where evangelicals a lot of times just quote a Bible verse and think that settles it, and that there's not sensitive application and contextual reading and so forth. 
So I think, I don't know which is most common. I think that those first two are very common. And actually, theological retrieval is a challenging kind of balancing act, because we're trying to be both good historians of doctrine as well as um, good theologians, good constructive theologians today. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think along the those lines, I think there's somewhat of a tendency, and I see it here at Moody among some of my fellow theology majors who are really interested in these things. Uh, once you start reading some historical theology, and I, maybe this kind of blends into some of the repristination as well, they just want to camp out in church history. And like, can we just, can we go back? Can we only focus on the historical theology, not necessarily seeing what that has to do with today, but are just staying in the library in their, you know, popular patristic series or whatever. Um, and I think, I think there's a, a whole lot of pastoral implications of how does this apply to today. And I imagine this is part of your work. I mean, you mentioned that you find yourself in a fairly low church setting. And so at least in some of the history of the church, as, as it develops, we see a higher church, a, a higher ecclesiology. Now, when, when you come to something like that, is that an area for you where you say, okay, yes, they used incense here, or yes, they chanted or whatever, but, but we don't need to kind of enshrine that forever? Or was that a case of reading it through the lens of scripture? When, when you kind of find that maybe dissonance in practical things like that, of, of what a church service looks like? Mm-hmm. When it comes to um, church services and expressions of liturgy and so forth, I do think there's enough diversity within the Christian tradition to give us a little wiggle room. You know, it's not as though if you're a low church, then you have nothing to look back to or something like that. Right. I would say on in the main, I do think people in my neck of the woods, so to speak, just need to keep working at this and, and keep getting better. I mean, just to try to own, own that. We need to beef up our liturgical awareness. So I do see this as just an area of growth for my kind of quarter of the church, uh, the circles I tend to run in. Um, the biggest area where I've wrestled with this question is baptism, because I'm Baptistic. Uh, I, I'm I'm not a pido Baptist. I think that only those who profess faith in Christ will be Baptists or, or should be baptized. And um, Karl Barth has influenced me on this. He's given me a little bit of comfort that, okay, there's at least one other really good historical theologian out there who was a credo Baptist, because Karl Barth was a credo Baptist. So not all Baptists are uh, <laughs> shallow, uh, historically shallow. But I have wrestled with this. What's helped me most with that is recognizing whatever view you take on baptism, there's a lot of people you're going to be disagreeing with in church history. Because if you take a Pido-Baptist view, but a covenantal Pido-Baptist view, you're disagreeing with the majority view throughout the early church. And if you're a Protestant and believe in baptismal regeneration, which is a different rationale for and species of Pido-Baptism, then you're disagreeing with a lot on the Protestant side. So when you can see diversity like that, it gives you a little bit of breathing room to know, okay, I'm not crazy here. There's others who have thought in this way. So that on some issues that can create a little bit more grace for each other for where there are differences. Not everything is the kind of matter where there's just one right practice. So some things are, but on other matters, like the liturgical expression of a church, there is a matter of wisdom and kind of contextualization for your context on, on how to go about that. Yeah, 
I appreciate you bringing up both of those aspects, the liturgical side, kind of just the, the practice. And I know some of my Catholic and Orthodox audience aren't going to want too much of a distinction there with Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, and all that. And I get that as well. But I think there probably is a certain level of, even inside those traditions, we see the, the way worship is being done changing at times. And then I appreciate you just being willing to bring up kind of the tension of being a credo Baptist and looking through church history and saying, there's a decent amount of people that that disagree with me. It Actually, right before we went on, I was talking to, again, Keith Little from The Cordial Catholic, which I usually tell my Catholic subscribers, he's your new favorite uh, Canadian Catholic podcaster, even if you haven't watched him yet, but a uh, great guy. And, and he asked me specifically, I mentioned that I was having you on, he's like, well, ask him, like, how, how does he have a, a Baptist view of baptism? And he also asked about the Lord's Supper. Would that be a similar area for you of tension, or do you feel less tension around the Lord's Supper? I feel less tension about the Lord's Supper um, because uh, this is one of those, because I've, in, in my friends who've gone Catholic, this is one of the things that comes up that I think is sometimes unfairly leveraged against Protestants. The, the fact is that most historic Protestant denominations have had a very high view of the Lord's Supper. Um, and so, you know, the Reformed view, someone like Thomas Cranmer, in the Anglican Church, had a very high view, very similar to Calvin's view. Um, and then you've got the Lutherans with consubstantiation, which is sure. very lots of points of contact with transubstantiation, the Catholic view. Um, and then today, you know, so I'm I'm more in the Reformed camp on this question. I'm similar to like Calvin and Cranmer and people like that. I have a very high view of the Lord's Supper, okay. and I don't think that the Catholic view of transubstantiation is what you see universally throughout the early Church. I think that took time to develop. I think the when Catholics say, in other words, you know, Church history is totally on the Catholic side on this. I'd say, well, I think Church history supports a very high view of the Lord's Supper. That is to say, a view in which Christ is truly present in the elements in some sense. I don't think it's fair to say transubstantiation with all its nuance is kind of the universal view up until the Reformation. I think there was diversity in how that was understood, how Christ was present in the elements. And so I think that creates space to see points of continuity between contemporary Protestant views, such as the one I would hold, or say Calvin's view in the early church. Thank you for saying that. And I, I think I kind of put my assumptions out on the table there and I appreciate you correcting them in just looking through your bio as a Baptist pastor. I assumed more of a memorial view than kind of a higher view with Calvin, even though I'm sure some of my Catholic audience will feel that's not high enough. It's certainly mm. higher than a purely, I don't know, we just do this, solely as a sign with, with no real element in there. So I appreciate you bring that up. Well, and, and I've said so many things in defense of Protestants in this uh, interview thus far. So let me just own a weakness that Protestants have, and that is that we need to think more about the Lord's Supper. We need to think more about its sacredness. We need to think more about church history and how that should inform the way we uh, understand and practice the Lord's Supper. So I'm always one to try to, uh, you know, acknowledge the weaknesses on, on my side. And this is one where I think at the popular level, many Protestants just have a very underdeveloped understanding of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever 
uh, someone will want to call it. And so that's, again, an area where we need to we need to grow and we need to develop, generally speaking. That's a generalization of Protestants today. I really appreciate the ability to have that critique of your own side. That's something I really appreciate when I when I see people that can do that. It shows a certain level of intellectual honesty that I really appreciate. And, and so as we kind of move towards wrapping this up, I you know, I think you might have already given this, but if someone's out there and they're an evangelical and they're saying, man, like listening to Dr. Ortland, I feel like this is something I want to look into. I feel like I should know more about church history than I do. And, you know, I, I want to make this a priority. Where would you have them start? Would you have them start with the confessions or would you have somewhere else that you would point them to first? My main advice is to encourage people to read the classics and not be too intimidated to go back. Sometimes people are too intimidated to go back and read classic texts because they think it'll be really hard to understand. But my experience is that the classics are often easier to read. They're often briefer, and they're often more sincere and kind of honest than a lot of contemporary academic books. Um, They have a a greater level of urgency to them. And so... A book like Athanasius's On the Incarnation of the Word, um, and you mentioned the fantastic preface to that in the uh, version that you mentioned, uh, St. Vladimir's Press, Popular Patristics. Um, Augustine's Confessions is a classic. I love encouraging people to read St. Anselm because he's a medieval theologian that, uh, again, is... um, He's relatively easy to get into. I think people will find the dialogue format of a book like Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, to be really interesting. And I also think Anselm just has a beauty to his writing. So his book, The Proslogion, has such a spiritual profundity to it. Um, So I would just encourage people to, to dive in with some of those classic texts, and I think they'll find them. This is actually easier to read than than I expected, I think, is what a lot of people will find. Awesome. Thank you. And I'll try to put some of those in the description for people if they're interested in taking those next steps. I've read most of those ones that you've referenced, and I will just echo those completely and really want to just uh, to, to agree with you in that it's not as hard as I think a lot of people are going to expect it to be. We have this bias that because it's old, it's going to be really difficult. But I just want to encourage people out there, you can definitely do this. And you should, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So the final question I want to ask you, and it kind of brings the interview full circle from the Cameron Bertuzzi question at the beginning, but for Protestants out there and Protestants considering converting to Catholicism or Orthodox, you're the second largest demographic on my channel. So for Protestants in that camp who are feeling the allure of Rome or Constantinople or Catholicism and Orthodoxy, what just maybe words of caution or words of advice would you give as they're sorting through that journey? Well, I would say a couple of things, and I'll try to be as respectful as I can be of even actually just staying out of the actual theology in this response. So in other words, I, w- I won't give the answer of Protestantism is right. That I won't give that answer right now because that's one of the points that they're probably wrestling with, and that's in dispute here. But I would give a couple of more preliminary things. One would be just to, to not let it be a romanticized decision in the sense, I think some people, it's so easy in the in the context of a change to see the grass is greener over there 
you see the idealized version over there and you see all the problems here. And, um, you know, I, I think probably all of us who are honest can admit every sector of Christendom has some problems. Um, no place is perfect. And you will uh, just do well to just anticipate the fact that wherever you end up, in whatever church, it you will have to humble yourself under the messy realities of imperfection and limitation and all of that. And so just kind of trying to dial some realism into the thought process a little bit. That's one basic appeal. The second one would be just to make sure that not too much focus is put on the so-called uh, smells and bells. Um, that is to say, don't don't put too much focus on just the liturgical draw, because that isn't something that actually is at the razor-sharp edge between Protestant and Catholic. Lots of Protestants have a very high liturgy. Don't let that be—I actually have met a lot of people who converted to, to uh, Catholicism or Orthodoxy, and I think it mainly was that. Um, you know, they had a bad experience in an evangelical church. There's a sense of grandeur, and there wasn't as as much rigorous thinking through the theology. And that's where I would want to encourage someone is just get some good texts, both contemporary and going back, reading classical texts, and really work through the theology. And just give yourself time to study and um, explore, and and don't be afraid of the outcome. That's one of the the scary things for all, um, really all intellectual pursuit is I don't know if you're honest about it, you have to say I don't know where this is going to end up for me, and that's a vulnerable thing to do. And I've had several issues in my life where I, I thought, uh oh, if I start studying this, this might become really inconvenient for me if I land in a certain place, and usually I do. <laughs> so then you have to, okay, well, you know, but you know, it's it's worth it to be true to your conscience and to follow what you think is true, no matter what the consequences are. But I would say just rigorous study of the theology. Don't let the um, aesthetics uh, drive you ultimately. And then I would also say, don't overreact against a particular bad experience you may have had in an evangelical context. Evangelicalism is so huge in the United States ever since like the fifties and Billy Graham. It's like, this is the, just the context that many of us are in. It has a lot of problems. Um, but don't overreact against one bad expression, one unhealthy church or whatever it might be. Try to take both evangelical Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism and Eastern Christianity at their best and let the best expression of each be what you evaluate. And then ultimately, prayerfully before God, through study and through prayer and through every available means that you can avail yourself to um, pursue truth courageously. And for me, that has resulted in, and I've gone through that uncomfortable process and lots of issues, including these kinds of ones, I've landed back in Protestant Christianity myself because some of the other things I'm working on are in re relation to apologetics. Um, I think all of these discussions actually come in the broader context of my biggest relief of my life that I've landed back within Christian orthodoxy as, you know, as I've wrestled with doubts and, and the nihilistic worldview that is common in our culture. And I've explored that and grappled with that. And my interest in apologetics right now is that in my study, I've become more passionately convinced that there's good reasons to believe that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead. So I've landed back in, in 
orthodoxy going through those doubts. I've landed back in evangelicalism working through those doubts. And uh, so I have a, gosh, the last thing I'll say is I have a lot of sympathy for the the existential angst of those processes. So they have my my prayers and sympathy as they go. Wow, thank you. That was such a good answer to that question. And I know I was blessed by that as someone who can relate deeply to the, as you described, existential angst of saying, let's follow where truth leads and trying to do that honestly, not to mention doing it publicly. There's definitely this a sense of unsteadiness there, but I think it is absolutely worth it to, like you said, have on your conscience that as uncomfortable as it is, let's follow where truth leads, which segues perfectly into allowing you to let everyone know about your channel. Truth Unites, I believe, right, is the name of it there. And so would you just let people know, I'm sure they're wondering how they can hear more from you, where they can hear more from you, your books, just all, all of the plugs for what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Um, and uh, love this conversation. Thanks for having me on. Um, my website is just gavinortland.com. That's a great connection point because you can go to one of the top tabs and see books or see videos. So that's a great connection point. That also has links to um, my Twitter and Facebook pages and that kind of stuff. My YouTube channel is also on there, and that's called Truth Unites. It's an apologetics and theology channel, so it's pretty broad. I do a mix of videos myself and interviews. I started it about two months ago, so I'm still just at the cusp of getting to about a 1,000 subscribers now, so I'm still kind of getting going, but I love it. It's just a hobby for me. It's a lot of fun on my day off. I love just um, trying to – and you, YouTube is a great – um, opportunity to connect with people like this. So, um, yeah, if people want to subscribe to me, I'd appreciate that. It, the, the title of it is truth unites. The basic idea there is our, our culture is polarizing and our world is polarizing so much. And I want my voice to be an ironic one and, and a one that's ironic within the church and, um, hopeful and unifying even as much as possible to those outside the church. So it has an ironic uh, tone to it, I hope, but its main focus is on theology and also on apologetics. Wow. Well, that is awesome. Guys, be sure to go subscribe to his channel. Let's let's get Dr. Ortland over a thousand. I know <laughs> how exciting for me that was. It, I absolutely love what you're doing, and I think people will really be just blessed by it. So thank you so much for coming on here today. I've greatly enjoyed this. And thanks to all of you all for watching this video. I know I don't take that lightly and I'm sure Dr. Ortland doesn't either. So thank you so much for your time. Also a big shout out to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make interviews like this and this channel possible. To all of you, be on the lookout for more videos. Until next time, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that will change the world.